great indeed is the mystery of godliness. It's the first verse that we're going to look at this morning. It comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 3. You'll see it uh, in the worship guide that you have provided for you as you came in through the welcome table. If you're missing one, feel free to hop up. This is a safe place to get up and move and make noise and knock over aluminum coffee cups and excuse babies who are crying. This is a, a laid-back atmosphere, so when a kid screams, we just assume there's somebody with a children's ministry shirt that's going to run and deal with it. And so make yourselves at home, hop up, bathroom's over there if you are joining with us for the first time. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. The, one of the things um, that, that stands out to me as I, as I consider sort of this first verse that, that we're going to look at, great indeed is the mystery of godliness, is this one true reality of anyone who has pursued God. And it doesn't matter if it was Abraham or you, if it was Adam or Job, there is some point in our lives, and, and if we're being honest, there are a million points in our life when we're wondering, what is God up to? Like, maybe I'm even struggling to trust that he's there. Maybe I'm struggling to trust that he cares. Maybe I'm struggling to trust that he's powerful or that he actually has a plan. But there are thousands of times in our lives, depending on how long we are pursuing the Lord and running hard after Jesus, where we look at our lives, we look at our circumstances, and we say, what is God up to. I, I've told you this a, a number of times if you've been with us. One of my favorite things that I did in my late teens and early 20s was teach orienteering, map reading, and land navigation to a bunch of middle school and high school guys out in the middle of the woods. And we would be situated on hundreds of acres, and there were four spots in those hundreds of acres that we had dropped pins, and all they had was a map and a compass, and they had to figure it out. We didn't give them clues. We didn't give them riddles. If they could read a map, they could say, oh, it's near a, cr a creek, or it's up a hill, or something along those lines. But as one of the guys who was an instructor out there, I would go out, and this was before our phones had GPS, and so I'm now alienating 70% of you, but... Before our phones had GPS, I had a handheld. It was like on the lanyard. It looked very not nerdy. Um, as I'm walking through the way, I had a handheld GPS. And so before, days before, I would go out and I would find the point. I'd plug it into my GPS. I'd go to the other one, plug it in, plug it in. So everyone else is pulling out a map and they're shooting an azimuth and they're figuring out their pace count and all of these different things. Well, I'm just holding on to my thing, and I'm like, I'll see you guys later, and I'm walking because I know how to get where I'm going. We can relate to this nowadays. As soon as you lose your phone, and you go to somebody, and you're like, hey, I need help finding my iPhone, and you go to the little app, and it says, it is here, and it's in this wide blue circle, and you're like, great, it's in my house or my neighborhood. What am I supposed to do with that? And then you hope that your Wi-Fi network or the satellites pick up more and that blue circle gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Well, that's how it was with my little GPS because back then there were like three satellites and Sputnik flying around the earth. And so if I didn't have all three of them, my range was incredibly wide. What we're about to look at is an incredible scripture where God puts on display in poetic fashion, that he has gone to incredible lengths to squeeze the circle of you and I and our hearts, our emotions, our affections, our mind, being able to know with 100% surety that the point of the mystery of godliness, how can man and God be in right relationship so that that blue circle shrinks and shrinks and shrinks? So let me read through 
a part of our text and then pray over our own hearts and minds. I'm going to start in verse 16. I, I, I don't have the guide up here with me. I think you may have a couple of verses ahead of that. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Pray with me, if you would. Father, as, as we read those little six lines of, of a poem, of a hymn, I, I pray that as those things were originally written to point to all of the different great realities of who Jesus is and what he has done and what his work on the cross has accomplished and what that calls us to, that all of us on a Sunday morning sitting in Ellerslie, Georgia with dew on the grass would find our place in this great story. That we would recognize that though you are so far above us and beyond us in knowledge and majesty and glory, you have condescended to us through becoming like us in the incarnation of your Son. And in so doing, have related with us, not just because you are good and not just because you are great, but because in your goodness and in your greatness, you have seen fit to love a broken people. And that is who we are. Whether everybody in this room agrees with it or not, it is who your word says we are. Broken, sinful people who are easily led astray, who are fooled into following paths of darkness and brokenness. And we, God, need the help of your Holy Spirit this morning. We need it every morning. And it is a blessing that as the sun comes up on my back, that we are reminded that your mercy has not stopped. As Wesley read over us, that your faithfulness is endless. May every man, woman, and child in this room today see the grandness of your mercy, the endlessness of your faithfulness, and the unique dot dropped in human history of your son and the mystery revealed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There's one thing you have to understand about the structure of this passage to really appreciate it. And I'll be honest with you, I think they made a mistake when they did the chapters and the verses on this. Just so you know, that is not a heretical thing to say. Everybody agrees that God's word, is, I say everybody, everybody who's faithful, agrees that what we hold in our Bible is the inerrant word of God spoken by God to man through different authors at different times, applicable to all people at all times. We would agree with that. Just so you know, we put chapters and numbers where it sort of made sense so that I don't say, hey, open up the scroll of Isaiah and all of you are just like doing this for 20 minutes trying to find where I'm at. If it were up to me, I would have started chapter 4 a little bit differently. Let me explain why. There are three things. Did y'all hear the donkey? That jerk. He, always, he knows when I'm preaching. He knows. I'm telling you, that thing's not going to be in heaven. All right. Some of you C.S. Lewis folks are like, but there's a wonderful donkey. That isn't him. A different one. Uh, so so uh, you have to appreciate this about the structure of what we're going to read. Three things you've got to notice. Number one, there is a mystery. Now, when God's word refers to a mystery, it's not talking about an Agatha Christie novel or Knives Out or something like you and I would think. What God is referring to is something that was hidden for a time but has been revealed. That's what he's referring to. And then from that mystery, we go into a hymn or a poem, a little six-liner. If you're looking at it, I can't see your worship guides, but if you're in your actual Bible, you'll notice an indentation and a squeeze to put on display that that text, verse 16, is unique compared to the text around it. And then when we get into chapter 4, we see something unique. So just look at these three things. Number one, we have the mystery. Then we have this poem, 
And then this in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Gets dark real quick. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So here's what you have if you open up your Bible and you're sitting on your porch with your cup of coffee and you're reading. What you have is this mysterious truth that would have been a mystery to Adam. Abraham, just as he didn't know how he was going to become the father of a nation, did not know how God's mystery of rescuing people was going to work out. Adam, when he heard this riddle of the the serpent is going to be crushed, but the one who crushes the serpent is going to be... That was a great mystery to him. Job, we, we don't know if Job ever got to know the cosmic battle over his soul. All of this was a mystery to them. But then we get to this poem, and God wants to make sure that you and I and anyone in the New Testament era would know, hey, mystery over, it has been revealed to be my own son, Jesus Christ, which is why the beginning of the poem begins with, he The answer to this great mystery is not a thing or a place or an object. It's not a button on top of a mountain or a certain prayer that you have to pray. It is a person in the person of Jesus Christ. But then, after we get the gospel in pill form in that little hymn, we find that this simple, mysterious, glorious gospel is not going to be accepted by all. And it's not going to be followed by all. Now, this is unique because when, when I was leading teenagers through the woods and they were figuring it out, when they got to the point, there was a placard and it had a letter on it. And there was a guy sitting in a chair with a Bible on his lap. It was obvious. It wasn't thorns. It wasn't thistles. It wasn't a river or a creek. This stood out as unique in the woods. And I'll tell you what never happened one time. We never once had a group of boys walk up and look around and say, okay, I'm supposed to find point R. There's a placard that says R. There's a guy that I know who sent me on this mission sitting in a chair with a Bible in his lap. I don't think this is the place. I think we need to keep hunting, guys. And they're like, there's a cooler of ice water and a sign that says, we're glad you made it. And the guy's like, nah, my compass is pointing just a bit. Buddy, you got on a heavy watch. I'm telling you, it's pulling the needle. I never had that happen, and yet... God makes very clear, and this should sadden us, it should cause our hearts to be heavy and often laden in prayer, there are people who see Jesus. They hear about Jesus. They read about Jesus. They may even experience Jesus in a worship setting or a church setting or a camp setting, and they see it, and then they walk away. Have you ever been surprised by somebody that you were sure was going to become a Christian that still has not? You're like, but this thing happened in your life, and then this thing happened in your life. How can you not respond to the good news of Jesus Christ? Or have you ever known someone who was so obviously a Christian, and then they walk away from the church, they walk away from their community, they walk away from their wife or their husband or their family, their children, their community, and you're looking at yourself and you're like, how does this happen? Well, that's what this text is all about. And the two things that we really need to ask ourselves is this. Number one, how did God reveal this without a shadow of a doubt? And number two, how was it received? Now, can I I give you a little pro tip on this? I want you to fight. Uh, Let me change this. If you are a a repentant Christian, you know that you are believing in Christ. You have asked him for the forgiveness of your sins. You have trusted his work on the cross to cover over your brokenness, and you are right with God. I want you to think less of yourself 
as we read this and more about your community. If you're not a believer or if church is new to you, if this whole Jesus thing is new to you, and I'm talking about grace and, uh, and righteousness, and you're like, man, these are some words that I don't know. Number one, I just want you to know, please don't leave without talking to me. I would love to just sit down and talk about your life, who Jesus is and who God is. You, I want to look for yourself in this. Y'all tracking with me? If you know you're a Christian, I want you to think wide. If you're not sure, I want you to think very slimly as we look at this. All right, so how was God's great mystery revealed? Look at verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then we have these six lines. Now, every one of these six lines is like a satellite flying over the globe, shrinking that blue circle on your phone so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt where you are in your relationship with God. Number one, he was manifested in the flesh. How is God's great mystery revealed? Through a person, through Jesus, who is manifested. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But it's not just saying that God came and dwelt among us like Jesus, in Jesus. When it points to his flesh, that terminology is not just saying he looks like us or feels like us. It's also pointing to the fact that he was willing for his flesh to be torn for us. It's pointing to the fact that he was willing not only to put on flesh, but to have that flesh ripped off in his back. Hands pierced, legs pierced, side pierced, his flesh broken. This is 1 Peter 2.24. By the way, it's very hard to put all of our scriptures in this little worship guide. It's also very hard to put a projector and stuff up in this place. So you're just going to have to be varsity Christians and go look these verses up. We did put them in there. You can trust me, I hope, that I'm reading out of scripture. But they are in there if you want to go and look them up later. First Peter 2.24, the broken body of Christ. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. How is God's great mystery revealed? Through Jesus. But then it goes further. Look at, look at line three. He was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated isn't a word we use a lot. The word that we use nowadays is verified. So if you get the little blue check on Twitter, if you get the badge on Instagram, verified. You are who you say you are. Just so you know, that is not new. It's new digitally. But people often have questioned the authenticity of letters that were written or edicts that were made by kings. And what God is saying is, look, not only did I come, not only was my body broken, but the Spirit verified this. Think about the baptism of Jesus. Jesus goes down into the water, comes up, the whole Trinity is present. The Spirit comes down, God the Father speaks out of heaven, Jesus is standing right in front of them. Not only that... After Jesus dies on the cross and is ascended into heaven, he tells his believers to do one thing. Starts with a W and ends with an 8. What is it? He tells them to wait. Don't go anywhere because in a minute, I'm going to verify, God is going to verify, vindicate that what I have said is absolutely true. So these dudes, they're, uh, look, I, I don't think as highly of the disciples as some. Y'all know that about me. These bums are just hanging out in an upper room trying to figure out what they just did with their past three years and the next thing they know fires on top of their heads you know there was this moment where they were like you know like they're like maybe it's ever did i get did i get chosen to? yeah okay that burns right and so not only that but they're given new languages to speak and to proclaim the gospel why because god wants to verify my son is who he says he is he's done what he said he's done not only that Line number four, seen by angels. Notice when angels appear in the Bible. They appear in a number of different times, but they appear as highlighters in the life of Christ. 
They, uh, they sing at his birth, Luke 2. They announce his resurrection, Luke 24. They witness his ascension, Acts chapter 1. Angels are testifying to his glory. And it's not just, oh man, that was really cool, an angel showed up. No, what's happening there is God is saying, I am giving the stamp of approval from heaven. I am agreeing on everything that you have seen so that one more satellite flies in to squeeze the circle so that you would know the mystery of finding God is found through Jesus. He's proclaimed among the nations. This is then preached with great effect. We read about it in the book of Acts. Believed on in the world. And then finally it says taken up in glory. Which is interesting because until that line gets to taken up in glory, everything's moving in a chronological way. I mean, just take a look. Jesus comes, he dies, Spirit, uh, he, he comes, the Spirit agrees, angels agree, he's proclaimed, people believe, but then all of a sudden it says he was taken up in glory. Well, that happened before the proclamation. That happened before people began believing, mostly. Why? Why would the author put that at the end out of order? I think it's because Paul is looking at that and he's saying, that may have happened a while ago, but it is still the thing that I am clinging to. My hope is that Jesus did rise from the dead. My hope is that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. For those of us who are Christians, this is 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. Here's what you should know. God went to incredible lengths to make sure that even 2,000 years later, we can know Jesus was here, did come, did live, did die, did resurrect, and did ascend into heaven. So without a shadow of a doubt, we can know the answer of godliness. But this is where the rubber hits the road for most of us in this room today. How is that mystery received? God did all the revealing. None of you sent an angel. Not, nobody like called in an airstrike 2,000 years ago and was like, these shepherds aren't going to believe it if it's just a star. Somebody send a multitude. That's not how it worked out. We weren't involved in that. God did all of that. The question is... How do we receive God's great mystery? And, and just a hint, you have a lot to do with this. Out of curiosity, how many of you guys loved spending the night away when you were younger? Like it was one of your favorite things? Okay, put your hands up. I need to know who my people are. Okay, all right. I loved spending the night away. Uh, it was my, like my favorite thing to do. The older we got, sometimes I think my mom wondered like, I haven't seen Will in a week. I, I hope things are okay. I loved spending the night at my friend's house. And, and if you did this a lot, you know you went to different friends' houses for different reasons. Okay? One, oh, I did, yeah, some of you are my people. Okay? You know that you went to Mike's house because he had a trampoline, even though he was annoying and he was going to watch wrestling until 2 in the morning and you couldn't care less. I'm sure y'all can relate with that, right? You knew that you went to the Jones house if you wanted the best snacks. If you wanted to just drink water and have a bedtime, even though you were 17, you went to the Powell's, okay? That's how it worked for me. You went to the Hawk's house if you wanted to get away with murder, because I don't know how we pulled off all the things we pulled off and didn't end up in jail. That is how it worked out in my experience, okay? It's probably the same for most of you. You can think of these different homes with different rules. Well, God's word makes it very clear, hey guys, you as mid-tree, if you're a member of mid-tree, or, or debating it and moving in, in that vein, you are part of God's family on this street in this neighborhood. 
My household has a wife, three sons, and a daughter. Me, obviously. And theoretically speaking, my house operates according to my rules. Because I'm the dad. And what I say goes. And nobody should laugh at that. When dad says it's bedtime, come on! When, when dad says, he's true. I mean, it's theoretical. I'm such a busted mess. When, when dad says it's bedtime, brush teeth, go to bed, right? I, I get to be the one who comes up with the rules of the house. Hey, dad, can we play on, on the Switch? Can we play on the Nintendo Switch? Well, I've got two questions for you, buddy. Are your chores done and is your schoolwork done? And if there's ever a pause, I'm like, just leave. Like, we know. Just walk away. But if there's not a pause, then I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'll pull out my phone, I'll unlock it, and off they go, and they can play. Dad, is this an okay word for me to say? No, that's not okay on a Dave Chappelle sh- like special. You're not allowed to That hasn't happened, by the way. We did have one slip, and, and one of my kids was like, I didn't know that was a bad word. And I was like, well, you can't watch Avengers anymore. It's over. I'm sorry. It's it, it, like dad gets to decide these things. We, we even have a rule in the hawk house of when you can use potty humor. Like when you can talk about hineys and farts and things like that. And you can't do it if a female is present. Which means if we're all eating dinner and mom and Tiggy aren't near there, there's a very different conversation going on the table than the moment one of them sits down. Those are, I'm not saying those are rules you need to apply. They know how they are supposed to, to act toward their mom how they're supposed to act toward their dad, how they're supposed to act toward each other. How do we obey all the way, right away, with a good attitude? Those are the three biggies. Do they always do it? No. Does dad always do it? No. But they know the rules of the household. This text is about you knowing God is loving, he is caring, but he's also a father. And he is a father who cares about the order of his house. Look at verses 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, this was always important to God, but I would be willing to bet it became more important the moment Jesus went back to heaven. And the reason was prior to that, in the real early days, God hung out with a couple of people in a garden. And he set the rules there. And yes, they flubbed and they broke. But they knew where the garden was. And then later on, there was this tabernacle. And there were certain rules of who could go in and when they could go in and how they were supposed to worship. God's house rules. And then it became a temple. Same thing. But now, after Jesus leaves in the New Testament, there is this massive change. There is no one special place. There is no one special city in Jerusalem. They're sent into Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. There's no building where God's God's people dwell. I'm going to read to Ephesians 2. It's longer, so feel free to close your eyes so that you can see the words. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. That is a term of being in the city. He goes on and he says, and members of the household of God. He closes out the passage by saying, in him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What that means is, we are no longer going somewhere to dwell with God. It's not an argument against gathering together 
as a church. It's actually the greatest argument for why our Sunday gatherings are very important. Two words that, that God uses in this text. Pillar and buttress. I was driving down either J.R. Allen or Manchester. I always get them mixed up because I'm from here and I don't know exit numbers or anything like that. But I was driving down and I pulled out my phone and I snapped a picture. Karen was driving. I wasn't driving on my phone. And one of the kids in the back was like, Dad, why did you just take a picture of a bridge? And I said, well, because I'm reading the scripture. Look on the very back of your worship guide. You're going to see two bridges there. One of them, I didn't know they were going to be this big. You can probably figure out where one of them is from. Because those of you who made A's in grade school can see that there's a sign on it. And it says, Schaumburg Road, right? So most of you guys know where that bridge is. The one next to it is from London. Now, this, these two words that God uses to define his household, pillar and buttress, make you think of a bridge. It makes you think of something that is holding up something valuable. But I want you to notice that bridges all do one thing. But some of them do two things. All bridges hold up something valuable. Have you ever been going across a really long bridge in Louisiana or something like that and just think, if this thing goes down, I'm out. Like, it's over. I, my, my wife likes listening to uh, dark, odd podcasts. And she was listening to one uh, about prison. And do you remember this, Karen Ann, the dude who was going over the bridge and he was in the back of the... It was a prisoner. He was in the back of one of the, I don't know, the transport vans. And he's locked up. And he was going across this long bridge. And he thought, man, if this thing goes off, even if they wanted to get me out, and I don't know that they would want to get me out, I'm going down. I, I have no hope. We need our bridges to hold up whatever's going over the top of them because whatever they are holding is incredibly valuable. All bridges do that. But look at this bridge in London. I should have looked up who designed it. This bridge is not just holding up something valuable. It is putting on display, it is bringing attention to the one who designed it. It is holding up something valuable, just like Schaumburg Road does. But it's holding up some. it's like a Buzz Lightyear. It's holding up something valuable with style, right? Like, it, it is bringing attention to the one who designed it. If you look at most churches nowadays, they're not ornate. They're not impressive. There's not tons of filigree and all these details. Think back to old cathedrals or even the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament. We don't see that anymore. Why has the church moved away from that? Should churches be beautiful? Should they be ornate? I would argue they absolutely should. And that has nothing to do with the fact that we're building a building. It has everything to do with the fact that Churches should be beautiful, but let me say something to you that I've said a hundred times in the past three years, but the church is not a building. You are the pillars of the church. You are the doors of the church. You are the impressive filigree. You are the detail. You are the beauty that is put on display. Look, a church can hold up the gospel, or the church can hold up the gospel and be beautiful doing it. Why would we want to just be a, a group of people who are crusty and bitter and angry at this broken world when we can cling to the gospel and put on display how amazing and glorious God is? Isn't that who you want to be? It's who I want to be. And so when I look at this text, here's what I call God calling me to be and you to be. He individually and communally, God wants you to display the beauty of godliness and bear the weight of godliness. He wants you to display 
who he is. Point to the designer who is incredible, but he also wants you to hold up what's important. What's the point of a bridge that looks great, but every time a car drives over it, it crumbles and falls into the river below? Nobody's driving on that bridge. So we've got to get both of these things right. And and, and like I said, there's going to be a temptation to look just at yourself. Christians in this room, mid-tree members in this room, look wider than that. This is why churches gather, because we realize that we're better together than we are apart. Us trying to do Christian life without a community would be like a door just sitting in the middle of a field. And then numerous fields over, there being a chair, somewhere else there being a kitchen table, and somewhere else there being a sink. Don't get me wrong, they're all wonderful pieces, but they don't operate until you draw them together. Not everything is better in the comfort of our own home no matter how much we are told that it is. You go to a good movie, you want to see it on the big screen with the massive speakers that cause you to walk out like Glint because you just lost half of your day. And you're like, oh my gosh, I feel like a little bit of a loser right now because I'm walking out of a movie at four in the afternoon. What's wrong with me? Who have I become? That's happened to me a couple of times. I'm dealing with it in this moment. I'm realizing it. But you want to be in the place where you can get the greatest experience. Don't get me wrong. Nowadays, people can tune in. They can tune on. They can watch at home. I'm just telling you, we need to fight, especially right now, to do two things. We need to fight to gather together, and we need to fight to show grace. This is a hard time for a lot of people. And this is a great time for the church to put on display our love and our grace. Secondly, churches plant. One pillar is a joke. One buttress is a joke. Nobody drives across a bridge with one leg because it does this number. Nobody's driving across that. Every one of you, if you are a believer in Christ, should be tethered to a church because every one of you is called to be a guide wire that stabilizes the whole structure. And one is not enough when it comes to churches, and this is why we plant. We, I, look, I, I drove past two churches to get here today. We need many gospel-preaching churches that hold up the truth and put on display the beauty of who God is. Because while one message is enough, we need a million messengers. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It's one of Paul's favorite words. He, He uses the word godly nine times in this entire text. And his thought here is not being good and being buttoned up. That's what we talk about when we say godly. Is somebody godly? Oh, well, how, how are they acting and how do they seem in their demeanor? What he's saying is, do you have a, a God thoughtfulness, a God consciousness? Do you have this God centeredness? That's what he's calling us to. And it would affect everything in your life. If we wake up with a God consciousness, with the godliness that he's pointing to, if we wake up, our head comes off the pillow, and before we look at our phone with all of the little notifications and whatever's new in the news, we remind ourselves, this was a day that was made by God. Let me be glad and rejoice in it. I remind myself that his mercies are new every single morning. That's what godliness looks like. It's when you go to pour your cereal or pour your cup of coffee, depending on your age, if you just pour one or if you make two because there's someone else that you can serve. It, it changes the way that you drive to work or drive to school. What are you listening to? What does your face look like? If somebody drives by you, are they going to say, Oh, now that person is, is devoted to something. Or are they going to say, I hope I don't see them at all today. What, do, what are we portraying in the way 
that we live, when the first bump of your day hits, can I give you the greatest challenge that I think the Holy Spirit would give you? The first bump of your day, and there may be a hundred, what if instead of throwing your hands up or saying, you've got to be kidding me, what if instead you said, all right, Lord, what are you up to? You have a plan for everything. You're not surprised by anything. You bring or allow everything. So what is this thing? Do you see how this godliness that Paul is calling us through God's word changes us? Jesus maintained 100% godliness in all places at all times. It's how he was able to die on the cross for our sins as a perfect sacrifice. Imagine for a moment if everyone in the whole world maintained 100% godliness. Like, allow yourself to imagine this. If everyone was like, no, you go first. No, you go first. Can I cover your tab? Imagine for a moment if everybody was full of 100% generosity, 100% selflessness. Just imagine what that would look like. Well, can I just tell you? Here's the mystery of godliness. It ain't going to happen. But what about in the church? What about the people who have all agreed to this truth and have all wanted to display this beauty? What if we look each other in the eye and we say, I'm never going to hit 100% because the moment I do, Jesus is pulling me up. He's got nothing left for me to do here, all right? Sanctification done. But what if I can operate at 98.1%, all right? What if I, as a church, all of us can seek for godliness? If that happens, hospitality is not a team. It's a mentality, and everybody does it. it if, if we operate as close as we can to 100% godliness in this church or in any church, sharing what God has done in an, it is not just an upfront testimony. Hey, guys, I wrote this down because I'm incredibly nervous to be in front of you right now. That's how they all start, right? And then, like, half of us are crying. And, uh, what if it was happening all over the place? It wasn't just an upfront thing, but the regular rhythm of our life was to be a group of people that the moment we gather, we look at each other and say, can I tell you what God has done in my life lately? What if instead of prayer being something upfront and planned and written on cards, that's all good, we should continue to do it. What if it was spontaneous, meaningful, to where it was common for you to look around a church building and see a brother with his arm over another, their eyes closed, as he said, hey man, I just heard of what's going on in your life, can I pray for you? Or somebody even going and saying, hey, would you, would you pray for me this week? Here's what I have going on. And instead of saying, yes, I'll pray for you, and then three weeks later you realize that you forgot to, so you can't say hey to the guy anymore until you pray first because he may give you an update and you're going to feel bad. What if in the moment somebody said, hey, would you be praying for this week? You said, yeah, let's go. Let's pray. What happens if everyone is bearing one another's burdens in serving? If everybody grabs a chair at the end, God does not want you to imagine that. He wants you to create it. He wants you to build that. It's why his Holy Spirit resides within us. It's why this text refers to us as the church of the living God. If Kyle, who has never been to a church, walks down that street and he sees this place, is he going to say immediately, God is alive and he is with these people? That's what we see in God's word. But there is a problem here. We had our first football game in the Hawk family yesterday. It went really well. It was an awful lot of fun. One of my kids got a, a, a monster block, and I was super proud of him. But in Pee Wee, they're not super great at passing and catching yet. I'll never understand why they use the size ball they have. 
I'm just like, you have got to, not all of these people are Brett Favre. Like, not all of them. And you got this little kid, and he's like, and it like flies like a dead duck in the air. But they've got to work on passing instead of trying. And there were like three passes the whole game yesterday. And, and, And here's the reality. If the quarterback throws the tightest spiral, by the way, you're welcome for a football analogy on this weekend. If the quarterback throws the tightest spiral that could be thrown and it hits the guy smack dab in the middle of the numbers. The quarterback has done everything he needs to do. Gives it enough height to go over the defense. The timing is perfect. Hits the guy on the route. Nails him in the middle of the numbers. It doesn't matter unless that guy squeezes on to that ball. This text is all about God saying, I threw the spiral. I gave you enough time to see it. You have heard the gospel, many of you, time and time again. That isn't the issue. God has revealed it. Think back to the poem that we looked at. The question is this. Are you going to wrap your hands around it? And are you going to squeeze onto it? Because there are two scary words that we have to close out on. And these two scary words are all about the ball being perfectly thrown, coming right at us. And it going through our hands or us having our back turned and us not making any progress with the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, by the way, that's when you and I live. Later times in the Bible means after Jesus goes up to heaven, before Jesus comes back from heaven. The Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith. Some are going to leave. One of the reasons people leave the church is to display that just because people are in God's house, they are not necessarily of God's family. You realize that? It's actually all over the Bible. They left because they were not truly of us. And I've seen, I I would imagine many of us have seen that if we've been in the church for any period of time. And this reality should make us sad, but none of us should be surprised by this. I've seen servants of God turn into servants of success. I've seen people who were generous to others steal from the church so that they could build their own kingdoms. I've seen affairs explained away. Marriage vows softened because of how difficult life is, even though they made a covenant to the Lord. I've seen children abandoned in the church. That's what I've seen. Imagine if we all got out a piece of paper and wrote down what we've seen. Why do I say that? Because I need you to be a little bit scared as we read this next verse. The only way I know you're believing in Christ is tomorrow, not today. You can fool me today. But if you come back tomorrow and you're loving Jesus and you come back the next tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow, then we make it to the end. Now, the Spirit expressly says in later times, some will depart from the faith by two words, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It all comes down to devotion and deceit. Now, remember... These verses make you want to look at yourself. I'm okay with that. That should be happening. But I want you to also think wider than just yourself. Devotion means something that is all-encompassing. And there is one person that should have all of our devotion. And that is God and God alone. Right now in your life, something is trying to steal your devotion from Jesus. I guarantee it. And it doesn't even matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Everyone in this room is trying to have their devotion taken from the one place it actually was designed to go. And it almost always looks the same way. 
for somebody who seems like they're following Christ. It starts in a small way, in a worldly, acceptable way. It's why we read in Hebrews 3, take care, brothers. This is written to people who are gathering together in God's household. And here's what he says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What's the remedy? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's today, so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's the second word, deceit. And that's the really scary one. You can tell when your heart's being pulled in devotion to something else, right? YouTube and TikTok are the best examples of this. You're like, I got five minutes. Two hours later, you're like, what has just happened, right? You knew. You swiped. You knew what you were doing. You knew that your heart and your time was being stolen from you. Look, every one of us knows it. Deceit, that's a scary creature. Because in every situation where I've seen somebody walk away from their family, walk away from their community, walk away from their church, all of them were deceived. They believed that they were doing, they had convinced themselves that they were doing something that made sense or was the right call, etc. and so on. So can I tell you the greatest safeguard you can put in your life? You would be a dumb Christian not to have four people who have veto rights to the decisions in your world. And please don't make them all the same like four, like... Get people who are older than you. Get people who, who um, have walked through different stages of life than you. And you look those four people in the eye and you tell them, if you see my life veering, step in and go ahead and make the decision today. If those people come to me and they say, I'm worried about your life, I'm worried about your heart, I'm worried about your soul, decide you're just not going to be defensive. Just to be humble about it and say, you know what? The danger of deceit is you can't even tell when you're deceived. So I am giving you veto rights to the foolishness of my own life. That's what God calls us to. Stokes, go ahead and come on up if you would. How is God's great mystery received? It isn't earned. It it isn't something where we're trying to pull it off. It isn't edited There's so much pop theology nowadays. Ah, hell's a a difficult thing. Let's just erase it. Let's say it's temporary at best. What about gender? What about marriage? What about this? You know what? I'll try to earn it and then I'll feel good about the gospel. Or I'll just edit a little bit of what God says. Or I'll have a proof theology. I'll know that I'm right with God if I get better from this illness. Or I'll know that I, I am right with God if this turns out okay. Or if this goes well for me. We don't see that in the Bible. We certainly don't see it in Job. Do you want to know how to pursue God? This is going to sound so simple. Enjoy him. That's how we receive God. We enjoy him. It's like sitting down at a table that was set for you with all of the finest foods that you have ever wanted in your life and trying to prove that you deserve the seat. You don't deserve the seat. It's trying to prove that you would have come up with a better menu. You would not have come up with a better menu. It's not saying I'm a good person because I ended up here. You weren't a good person because you ended up here. God, out of his good pleasure, decided to reveal to you today, if no other day, that Jesus is the mystery of godliness. Pursuing him with all of your heart, with all of your devotion, will bring you into the right relationship with God. And ironically, many people don't walk away because it's too hard. Many people don't walk away because of the edits. A lot of people walk away from the gospel because they believe it is too good to be true. 
That's why a lot of people, how could God do all this for me when all he asks me to do is believe and trust? And yet that's what we see. Left cover to right cover. There is a God who loves you. And right now as something is trying to steal your heart, he is trying to woo you and call you back to him. Not just to have a relationship with him so that you would become a part of the bridge that holds up the truth of who he is and displays the beauty of the one who gave you something to hold you up in the darkest of days. Until one day we make it across that bridge into the one city with the one people and one God. And all of that is through Christ and in Christ and for Christ. Be the bridge and be beautiful while you're at it. I'm going to be in the back over here if anybody needs to talk or if anybody needs prayer. We've got some very ostentatious, bright t-shirts on the crumb packers back there. They would love to pray with you as well. We made it easy to find them, right? You don't want the kid to get to the spot and then be like, we're back. We would love to pray with you. If you would stand up with me and let me pray over us. Father, I pray that we would be a responsive people. For some of us, that may mean we need to sit back down and go into prayer. For some of us, we may need to pick up that prayer card and write something else on it at this point. For some, we just need to put our hands up and lift our voices up and be grateful at the God who revealed mystery and gave us the ability to receive that truth. However it is that you want us to respond, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. May we be a people who are grateful for the work that you did through your son on the cross on the behalf of all who would believe. Fill our hearts, our minds, our spirits, and our voices as we worship you together. 